You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. And when you have turned there, go ahead and stand with me, if you are able, for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even that he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps, rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I want to say welcome, especially if it's your first time. Thank you for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here, and uh, we hope you have a good time. We had a great time celebrating ten year, our 10-year anniversary last week, and so I want to thank every one of you who came out uh, to Kingwood Town Center Park. It was a blast. Uh, we had a really good time. And uh, I didn't rig the drawing, but I did win a hat. It didn't fit me because my head is roughly as large as you know a monster, so I had to give it away. I have a Shrek head. I didn't actually keep the prize, okay? So somebody else ended up getting it. Um, But we're going to jump right into the book of Mark. As Scott said, we've been making our way through uh, the book of Mark this year. So if you'll bow your heads, I want to pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege this morning that we have as your children, as your servants, not merely that we get to gather together to sing worship to your name, to encourage one another, pray together. Take of your supper, but that, Lord, we get the great privilege to submit ourselves to the authority of your inspired word. We ask now that you, as you've said in the last few passages we've covered, give us ears to hear, Lord. Give us eyes to see. Let us not be dull in our hearts or dull in our ears or in our eyes. And God, you know what we need. You know our desires most certainly, but you know our needs. And so we ask that you would meet them. I ask that you would meet the needs of those under the sound of my voice with the truth of your word. And in so doing, Lord Jesus, that you would stand forth from the word and with your powerful presence that you would minister to us now, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Amen. 
So this week is a part two of last week. Now, I know that it'd be really easy and coy of you to say, well, isn't every single other week since we're going through the book of Mark like a part 37 of the last week, you know, and that's true too. Uh, but these, the reason I say a part two is that last week in the, the portion of scripture that we worked through, chapter four, verses one through 20, is interconnected in a way that it's hard to understand uh, each section of scripture, uh, 21 through 34 or one through 20, apart from one another. And so we have to do a little work, a little uh, crossing back in some, into some of the things that Jesus said last week in order to understand the words that he says this week. And Jesus is going to follow up by bringing clarity around a question that was brought up without bringing it up explicitly by the disciples. And that is, are the disciples supposed to keep Jesus a secret since he's clearly keeping himself a secret from the crowds? Jesus said in particular that the secrets of the kingdom of God were revealed to the disciples, but he said, quote, but to everyone outside in the crowds, I speak in parables so that seeing they would not perceive, hearing they would not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. And so now he's going to address the issue, should they operate like he does? Meaning they should keep Jesus a secret, like there's a club going on here. And he basically just demolishes that. He says no, which is interesting if you think about it for any length of time because aren't we called to imitate Jesus? And he says no. He says, is a, light, is a lamp lit that it might be put under a basket? I have lit you as a lamp to be put on a lampstand, meaning I intend for you to share the truth about who I am. He says nothing's hidden except to be made manifest and nothing that is secret is hidden or kept secret except to come to light. And then he says this line, which is that line from Jesus that lets you know that he said something that you thought you understood, but you didn't understand it. He says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. When you hear Jesus say that, you should think, I should reread that. Because what I thought he said is maybe not what he did say. Now, it's important for us to note, if you're ever reading your Bible and you see that the margins go from out to in, this means that Jesus is quoting something. He's not merely saying things that are to be quoted later. That's the red letters. But now he's quoting something, and most of the time Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. When he said that seeing they may not perceive and hearing they might not understand, and it's indented in the margins, he's quoting Isaiah chapter number 42. Now, what is in Isaiah chapter number 42? That's important to note. In Isaiah 42, Isaiah is describing the coming Messiah, and he's contrasting the salvation the coming Messiah will bring with the judgment that the presence of the Messiah will be toward Israel and their idolatry. But in particular, Isaiah 42 is a text of prophecy that acutely rebukes the elders and religious leaders of Israel in Isaiah's day. Isaiah says, who is blind and deaf like the messengers of Israel or the elders of Israel? So when it says that they hear, but they don't understand, they see, but they don't perceive, he's speaking particularly about the elders of Israel. And Isaiah goes on to say, so this is a people that's been plundered. They've been beaten down. They've been thrown in holes and in prisons because their leaders are deaf and blind and dumb. Now, again, I mean dumb like they can't speak. I'm not being too harsh, although that's harsh enough. 
So Jesus quotes this, and I want you to remember, what have, we go, what have we worked through for the first three chapters of Mark? Who are the people who are Jesus's most vehement critics? The religious leaders of Israel. The scribes and the Pharisees keep accusing and coming after Jesus. So much so that chapter 3 pretty much ends with saying they are ready to kill him. They are going to conspire to end his life. And then Jesus looks at the crowds and he starts to teach in parables. And he teaches a parable that he then tells the disciples is because of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, why do I say this? I say this because it's important we know why Jesus is keeping these things secret, himself secret. Now, there's a myriad of reasons. The Bible tells us particularly sometimes Jesus keeps himself secret so that the timing of his crucifixion would be the Father's timing and not man's timing. But here we see that he's keeping himself secret from the leaders as a judgment against those leaders who aren't showing up to his sermons in order to hear him. They're showing up to his sermons to accuse him. And so he tells stories in such a way that the disciples or the people who want to hear him understand what he's saying and the people who want to accuse him have nothing to accuse him of. What are they going to do? Go to the Sanhedrin and say, he told this agricultural parable. Kill him. He's a blasphemer. The Sanhedrin would say, well, what are we supposed to do with this? He, he's teaching about sowing seed. How, what is your accusation? Jesus does this on purpose. Now, for the crowds, the parables were a litmus test of those who will truly desire to hear Christ versus those who were there for dishonest reasons, namely the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a clear rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees again. They have inevitably woven themselves into the crowds. How do we know this? Because each gospel ends with the crowds being convinced by them that Jesus is a blasphemer and they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. The Pharisees have their way with the crowds inevitably. However, Jesus clarifies to the disciples that he does not intend for them to keep secret what he has revealed to them, but to share it broadly like a sower who sows seed everywhere. He reveals himself to them so that, not that they would be welcomed into a secret club, but so that they would then go and share, be witnesses to the ends of the earth. They're not called to sit upon these secrets, but they are a lampstand to the world. And of course, this, this line, witnesses to the ends of the earth, is exactly what they become in the book of Acts. And so therefore, he tells them, you must pay attention to what I say so that you can rightly recollect and share what I say. Listen to me, he says. And then finally, he says, you must be good stewards of what I am giving to you. A passage that you probably don't find often in, you know, mantelpiece artwork once again is this passage where we're used to Jesus saying that he humbles the exalted and he exalts the humble. Jesus says, to him who has much, I give more to, and to him who has little, I even take that away. <laughs> now, when you read that, you're like, that's not Jesus' words. It's like Stalin, I think, you know. That doesn't make much. He's not talking about money. He's not talking. This is not a ministry of the poor text. It's a stewardship text, which may include finances for his people. But that's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about the gospel entrusted to his disciples. In other words, he's telling his disciples they are required much because they've been given much, the secrets of the kingdom. 
and what, with what measure they give out this grace of the kingdom, it'll be poured back into them. But if they sit upon it, like the talents, the parable of the talents, if they bury it and say, well, I know my master, you know, and, and he's a ruthless guy, so I'm just going to hide the talent. He says, even that'll be taken away. He's warning the disciples, do not sit upon the gospel that I teach you, that I preach you, but share it liberally. Now, every week, Scott or Lauren or one of our hosts will get up and say, we're going through Mark and we're talking about how Jesus' teachings and Jesus' kingship is juxtaposed against maybe what our culture would say about Christ's kingship or the, or the world or reality. And one of the things that would be a cultural, I wouldn't even say it's a question. I wouldn't even say it's something that we're debating. I would say something that's been roughly reasoned to be certain in our culture is how can anyone know who God is? He is unknowable, in fact. There are so many different religions and options. How can God be knowable? This is so prevalent, in fact, that even some Christian leaders seem to be joining in on the idea, questioning the reliability of the scriptures, reframing God's word mostly as a story, not as authoritative. You know, they have academic words for it uh, that make them seem like they're being more wise or, you know, more scientific. And in reality, it's just, uh, well, heretical. It's just mostly apostasy, and yet it's becoming more prevalent. And this is exactly what was happening in Jesus' day with the Pharisees who claimed to be so committed to the scriptures, but they were way more committed to man's tradition because they had long since disrespected God's authoritative word and in so doing God himself. And so now they were the arbiters of truth. And if you rewind even further, in Isaiah's day, they had become blind because they had rejected the God who made them. They didn't care about God's word. They were idol worshipers, the children of Israel, and their leaders too. Isaiah is a wonderful book, but it's a scathing book because it teaches that idolatry always leads you to becoming dull because idolatry cannot help itself from following the principles of worship. And what are those principles? Well, number one is that you always become like what you worship. The Christian believes this too. It's why when Paul speaks of sanctification, he, he attaches it to worship and he inextricably links the two says that beholding the glory of the Lord in worship, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Meaning, the more that we are a quorum Deo before the face of God, worshiping the one true God, we begin to be sanctified and transformed into his image. This is what the Christian theology of sanctification is. We worship more, we are changed more into the image of Jesus. Here's the thing, that's a, that's a principle, a law, as it were, and the inverse is true as well. When we worship idols, we become more like them. So the children of Israel worship idols, the elders of Israel worship idols, and these idols cannot speak, they cannot hear, they cannot act. So the children of Israel, the elders of Israel, become people who are blind, deaf, and dumb. We become more like the idols we worship. And this is true in our day as well. We live in a culture of sadness and confusion, apathy and indifference for this very reason. It's because our cultural idolatry has reached full bloom. The results are all around us. The evidence is there. I could spend hours recounting every news article after news article or statistic after statistic. In fact, I actually did do a lot of that work and I had to end up scrapping it because, well, first of all, it's depressing. And, uh, you know, I'm already 
talking some heavy stuff. So it's like, let's just continue to layer that on. Plus, I'm sure you watch the news yourself, or maybe you've decided to cut it off because of that reason. Secondarily, just for the sake of time, you can go through and say, wow, our culture seems to be, there seems to be something off. All around us, the evidence is there. We speak, but without effect. We listen, but we can't really hear or understand. We are active, but our activity even feels empty or ineffectual. And we know this deep down, we only really reckon with it when we're silent or alone, but that's why we try to stay as active as we can and as noisy as we can. But Christ's words to the disciples should be resounding to us. Christ is the antidote to the spell that is being cast in his day and in our day. He's the elixir of life to a world that's gasping for breath. So what does he tell his disciples? Well, he tells them this, very simply at a surface level, do not live your life as a Christian, hidden. Live openly, shine the light of Christ. You were created, commanded, and commissioned by God to display his goodness and his glory to the ends of the earth. God has made you a lampstand, is what he says. So he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be open, be public. Number two, he says, pay attention to what I say. Christians ought to pay attention to the word of Christ, storing his words in our heart, not mixing human wisdom or earthly wisdom with God's wisdom, but seeking to know what is true. Christians should be rabidly committed to the word of God, pouring over it with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength out of a love for God, which is from our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We should be asking the spirit to embed the truth of God in our hearts. And this is not merely for the good of ourselves, but also for the good of everyone around us. And then lastly, we should be good stewards of the gospel that has been given, not to squander what's been entrusted to us. That's why Paul tells his son in the faith, Timothy, guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you and follow the pattern of sound words that I've given to you. So be like me, be faithful to what's been entrusted to you, share it liberally. Do the work of an evangelist, Timothy, go out. Share the gospel. Now, Jesus could have stopped there, but the next two parables are connected to this first parable where Jesus said, God is a God that desires to be known. This is not uh, my own ideas. We went through the book of Exodus last year, and in the book of Exodus, what is God's refrain? That they may know that I am the Lord, that they may know that I am the Lord, that they may know that I am the Lord. Well, who, Israel? No, Israel and Egypt and the Pharaoh. And then he finally just comes out and says that all the nations may know that I am the Lord. God has a thing about being known. He's not trying to keep it secret. Jesus didn't come and change that. Instead, he says that he intends for us to be very open about it, like a sower who's a little bit maniacal about sowing seeds. But then Jesus tells these next two parables. These next two parables give us the motivation, the context for why we might be these kind of sowers. So let's read verses 26 through 29. Jesus says this. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seeds sprout and it grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade and then the ear and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle. So this seems to be very on the surface, right? Jesus says, when we faithfully share the gospel, there will be fruit. God gives the increase. It is gradual, but God will ultimately carry it to fruition and he will reap the harvest. But I want to show you something that is also at the surface if you have the eyes to see it. And that is 
Who is the main character of this parable? Is it the sower? I would venture to say no. The sower is not the main character. In fact, all we know about the sower is he does two things. Sows a seed, goes to bed. That's it. Sows seed, sleeps. Day and night, that's all he does. God seems to be the main character of the parable because he does what? Nurtures the plant. Waters the plant with rain. Make sure that it grows. The sun beats on the plant but doesn't scorch it. Make sure that it, it buds to ear and then fullness to grain. Each stage of the plant's life, which if you ever did basic like ninth grade biology, you know, is pretty intense. All the different stages of a plant's life, God carries it through to its fullness. But God's the one who does this. And the sower, or you and I, the disciples, we plant and sleep. And then we wake up and go, look what's happening. And the Bible records, and we know not how. Listen to how Paul explains this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In the church at Corinth, they had a celebrity, a Christian celebrity problem, okay? By the way, yes, this happened really early. You know, certain guys' podcasts are more popular than other guys' podcasts real quick in the church. And so Paul comes in to kind of squash this. He comes in to, to fix the problem. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, he speaks to them about Apollos and Paul and Cephas, and I follow this guy, and I follow this guy. And, and Paul has an opinion about this. And listen to what he says, and also what I want you to focus in on is listen to the analogy that he uses. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse number 5. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? They are servants through whom you've believed, check this out, as the Lord assigned to each. Oh, Paul gives the glory to God that he's even able to sow the seed where he sows it. Then he goes on. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This parable from Jesus seems to be a promise about God's activity in sharing the gospel and it coming to fruition, it coming to fruitfulness. And it seems to me that it's teaching the power and simple obedience. Christ does not call us to accomplish salvation, but merely to be faithful witnesses to him who has accomplished it on our behalf. To merely be sowers of the seed, this word, this gospel word. Now, what is that gospel word? Well, a chapter before, Paul lays out his ministry model to the Corinthians. Watch what he says here. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Simply put, the message of Christ crucified was enough for Paul. Today, we convince ourselves often that our issues are too complex. They are too nuanced. They are too difficult, too academic to bring any change through the message of Christ crucified. We need something more. 
We need scholars. We need academics. We need experts. That's what we need. That's how I feel. And Paul shows up and said, actually, actually, I didn't come in lofty words, wisdom, skill in oratory. I was shaking, trembling, not sure why I'm even here. And I preached one message to you, Christ in him crucified. I made a decision that I would know nothing else. Many of us think, well, we've tried the whole Christ crucified message and you know, it just doesn't work. It's not enough. It's too difficult. It's too arduous. It's too monotonous. But I would argue that our pride has deemed Christ crucified and that message as too simple and therefore it has been left untried, at least largely, at least recently. It's left on the shelf for other methods and Paul says, I have decided that this is folly. Why is that? Well, because Christ crucified lays waste to man-made salvation techniques. The message of Christ crucified demolishes the strongholds of sin and entanglements of idolatry. Christ crucified skewers man's superficial conflicts, his petty judgments. Christ crucified is a message that humbles the most lofty of men and it exalts and wrenches from the lowly depths the most lowly of men. The message of Christ crucified centers us back to our most fundamental needs, our most fundamental desires, and our most fundamental sense of reality as it actually is. And you may be asking, well, what is that reality? That we are a lost people, a broken people, that despite all our best efforts, we cannot lift the crushing weight that bears down on our souls. It's a weight that tells us that what we were made for and what we currently are living are so far apart that it makes the galaxies themselves look like next-door neighbors. And we know this intuitively. We feel it. We sense it. I watched the... I've been watching something, and I told the 9 a.m. this. I guess I'll, I'll mention it to you. I don't, I, you know... I don't think anything that I say is going to be shocking or cause any pearl clutching, but it's possible. So you never know. But something I've watched over the recent years that is, what's the right word? It's gripped me with sorrow, pain, is the transgender phenomenon that seems to be sweeping our nation. Lots of opinions about this, but the reason it grips me with pain as I ask myself, as having been done student ministry for a very long time, particularly I focus on young women and young men who have chosen to surgically mutilate their bodies because they feel so displaced internally that they want their external to, to be changed to fit whatever this displacement is internally. And I ask, you know, what would drive someone to, to make this call? I've seen some of the pictures. And if you haven't seen these pictures, it, it really goes far beyond, you know, the three-minute segment on the news. If you really start to get into just how rough this is, it's very, very, very tragic. It's very bad, okay? It's sad. It's, it hurts to look at some of this. And 
I ask, you know, what would drive a young person to make this call or their parents to celebrate it or the culture to celebrate what's happening? And in, in the last few weeks, it's dawned on me, and I don't think I'm going to say anything revelatory, maybe hopefully so, but that self-same impulse is in all of us. It's what drives us to drink away our pain. It's what drives us to drug ourselves out of consciousness. It's what drives us to tear down the relationships that we should hold dear. It's what drives us to betray the people we love the most, to gossip and slander about our neighbor who bears the image of God. It's this impulse that drives the wealthy man to scavenge and to pillage as though he has nothing, but really he just wants more. It's this impulse that causes the beautiful woman to look in the mirror and for whatever reason loathe herself. It causes the wise man to be unspeakably foolish for no other reason. It's this impulse. And what is it? It's the essence of our exile. The displacement that we feel, the core of our corruption, that sin has so beset us so gravely, we are clawing around in the dark trying to find our way back to Eden, but we know not where to go. And we're hurting ourselves, we're hurting each other. Like starving people in the dark, you know? Our exile has driven us mad. Our idols that cannot speak, cannot hear, cannot act, have enslaved us in dungeons of our own making, in holes. And then Paul teaches us that the gospel word breaks through. Christ crucified breaks through. And peering up from the place that we are as a culture, maybe individually, peering up from this hole that we've dug ourselves, we see him there, arms splayed, nails through his wrists, blood streaming from the crown of thorns on his head. And Isaiah 53 should ring in our ear, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. Christ crucified, friends, doesn't need help. This message breaks through because deep, deep down, that's we know he is who we need. Sow the seed of Christ crucified and go to sleep because you can rest easy. It will bear fruit. Christ told his disciples, lest a seed die and be buried into the ground, it cannot bear forth fruit. And then he said, I am like a seed that goes into the ground and three days later I rise. The body of Christ was a seed and it will bear forth fruit. Have you ever wondered why we're called the body of Christ? We're going to grow and bear forth fruit because his body was broken for us, laid in a tomb and rose again on the third day. This is not merely any message. There is no message the world needs today like Christ and him crucified. And Jesus tells his disciples this. He tells his disciples the message of Christ crucified is enough so that they could get a vision of the glory of the gospel. And then he moves on to a third parable. And he says this, well, with what should we compare the kingdom of our God? So he gave him a vision of the king 
But what about the kingdom? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which was sown onto the ground, the smallest of all the seeds of the earth, and yet when it's sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants. (laughs) This one is going to be a massive garden plant. We're going to be invited to live there. That's where we were made for. He's going to bring us back there. So that the birds of the air can make its nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. That's why I prayed the way that I prayed to begin, that God would give us ears to hear. And now listen to this. He did not speak to them without the parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Friends, if you're in Christ, his desire is that he would be made known to you. He's not hiding behind a veil, but he desires to speak to you. But what about the parable court? Well, Again, a lot like the stats, I told the nine, I had some slides for you guys. Mustard seed slides, I kid you not. I had to scrap them because, well, we'd be here too long. But I had mustard seed slides and plants. By the way, the mustard seed plant versus the mustard seed tree, it's a little confusing. There's some disinformation out there, okay? And I want to warn you of this. Some of the pictures of mustard trees seem suspiciously large to me. And I'm wondering if maybe we were trying to help Jesus out. We you know, like, he wants a big tree. I'll give him a big tree. You know, big, big, awesome oaks. But at a surface level, the parable seems simple. The smallest of all the seeds, I don't know, like 12 Galilean men who were fishermen hanging out with Jesus. Seems like a small movement will be planted. And what will result is branches ever extending, ever reaching, so that the birds can make their nest. Jesus' vision for his kingdom is an ever reaching, ever growing tree that accommodates, the book of Revelation tells us, myriads upon myriads of people surrounding the throne room of God of every tribe, every nation, every tongue, singing to him, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Whatever vision that you have of eternity, I want you to know, it's going to be better. There will be more people than you can imagine it will be more wonderful than you and I can comprehend. The Bible tells us as much. He gives his disciples this vision so that they would be motivated, not merely by a vision of the king, but a vision of his kingdom. Nothing motivates the Christian like truly seeing the vision of the king and his kingdom. It's why the ancients, and in particular the Christian early fathers, spoke of what they called the beatific vision. The vision of Christ was glorious and to see him in this way was supposed to change us and it truly does. No one speaks maybe more eloquently, at least not an American, like Jonathan Edwards of the Great Awakening. And listen to what he says about having a vision of eternity, having a vision of God. He says, the foundation of the Christian's peace is everlasting It is what no time, no change can destroy. It will remain when the body dies. It will remain when the mountains depart and the hills should be removed. When the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, the fountain of his comfort shall never be diminished and the stream shall never be dried. His comfort and joy is a living spring in the soul, a well of water springing up to everlasting life. Edward spoke about the Great Awakening, saying that people would meditate on heaven for days with tears in their eyes during the Great Awakening. And he commended that to later Christians, saying, 
we should think more about where we're going because we're headed somewhere and you're not home now. Friends, we need to get a vision, a taste, a picture of God's glory, the king's glory, and the glorious purposes of his kingdom. Whatever you do, seek God earnestly this morning that he might give you the ability to just see through a glass dimly like Paul. Because even a glimpse would change you forever. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 tells us that what he has begun in you, he will finish. He will complete. He tells his disciples that he is the king and he has a kingdom. Later he'll tell them, in my father's house where I go to prepare a place for you, there are many rooms. If it were not so, why would I tell you of it? He wants them to know they're going somewhere. Your sin, your tribulation, your trials, your difficulties, they cannot separate you from this wonderful love of Christ and his plans for you, his purpose for you. Christ has done it. Although we are not home and we're not there yet, the tickets have been bought. Now to close, you might be asking, Court, I thought we were supposed to be talking about being missionaries and messengers, you know? You said the parables were about that. Aren't you supposed to be talking about how we're supposed to be better at sharing the gospel, being a light into the world? And here's what I'll say to that. I am. There have never been more effective and fruitful missionaries than those who have been utterly entranced with a vision of God and his kingdom. C.S. Lewis famously said, that naysayers of his day said, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And he said, to the contrary, I have found that the people who do the most for this world are the ones who are focused on more on the next. The ones who actually believe that the world we're in is not what we were created for, but there's purpose in this life and that is purpose that leads us to the next. <laughs> that what we do here matters only in relation that it has to where we're going, which is eternal. Another way to put it would be the most powerful messengers of the gospel are those who just can't help themselves. You ever watched a movie and you can't help yourself? You go home, you go to your wife, and you're the spoiler of that movie? You start telling her or him, ladies, about the movie, and they're like, yeah, don't worry about it, I'm going to watch it too. Like, oh, let me tell you one more thing. You're like, no, I said I was going to watch it. Like, okay, but let me just tell you this one scene, you know? And you're the spoiler because you can't even help yourself. Or maybe you sit down to watch a movie with your spouse. It's one that you really, really like. And it ruins the whole movie because you're watching them the whole time to see how they react to what you love. So you're like waiting for the punchline of a joke and you, you know, kind of look over at them. Are they going to laugh? Are they going to think it's funny? Are they gonna... At the end of the movie, you're like, did you get it? Did you get the whole plot? Bruce Willis is dead. <laughs> you know? It's like, did you get Inception? It's like a dream within a dream within a dream. Do you think he's asleep? Do you think he's awake? What do you think, you know? The best messengers of the gospel are like Ezekiel who says, it's like a fire shut up in my bones. I can't help but say it like Paul who says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, if only that I might finish my course to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. I count my life as rubbish. It's like dung compared to this. The best preachers of the gospel, the best missionaries are those who cannot help themselves. It's just they have seen a vision of something that they can't shut up about. And so, revel today, my friends, in the wonders of the gospel of 
grace. That's what my prayer is for us. Drink deeply from the fountain of Christ Jesus. Ask that he might give you a glimpse of the vision of the purposes of his kingdom. As we sing in a moment, as we confess our sins, ask that God might give you a glimpse, as D.L. Moody once said, of the love he has for you. Because I promise you, if the Spirit reveals even a fraction of that, you'll be that person who can't help yourself. You can't help yourself. You see people who are hurting, you don't try to come in with a cape. You just bring in Jesus. I have the answer to this. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so convinced of the gospel that I understand even if only partly what Paul means when he says, woe to me if I don't preach it. It is not merely true, my God. It is the truest thing that has ever been. You truly are the son of God, Lord Jesus, who's come into the world. There's no truth like it. Now I ask, I plead with you, Holy Spirit, would you give us a vision of the glory of Christ and his kingdom? Give us a vision of just how wonderful the message of Christ crucified really is. God, give us a glimpse of that kingdom that you are preparing, that you are building, that you are advancing. And in so doing, make us a people that cannot help ourselves. But we stand with Paul and say we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. In Jesus' name, amen.